Hello and welcome to The Davis Simmons Show. I'm your host, and for the second episode of my podcast, my guest and I will be continuing our look at soldier diets in the American Civil War. All right, and now let's get to this episode. For today's episode, we've got myself, Dave Simmons, and we have our guest once again. Harry Caldwell. Howdy. It's good to have you back on the show, Harry. I'm glad to be back. I love coming back. Now today we get to talk about Civil War food again, but first, today we get to start off the show with some fan mail. So, let's take a look at this right here. Our first letter comes from a fan named Omar. He says, Hi, Davis. I just wanted to write in and say that I love the show. My, my wife and I listen to you on the way to work here at a funeral parlor in, in Chesterfield. We can't get enough of your sense of humor in these newest segments, especially my wife, so maybe tone that down. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Uh, also, we are really curious about what made you decide to start making this podcast, if you ever might be interested in taking on more guests. So, thank you, Omar, for the response. Isn't he your alcoholic neighbor? Maybe. We'll find out. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Omar, that's that's nice to, nice for the uh, commentary. Uh, as far as more guests are concerned, if I ever do continue the series in the future, I might plan to have uh, some state park officials actually come on the show uh, from maybe Sailor Creek Park or Appomattox National. But, uh, that's yeah, I, I, w I would like to have more guests on the show. I mean... Harry, Harry's always entertaining to have on the show. Always good, good source. But yeah, I try. Well, um, we might be able to do that in the future. And then another letter we have is from Haley James, who says, "I'm a history major at Longwood University. Grew up in Richmond, Virginia. Surrounded by this history of the Civil War in school." And uh, she goes on here talking about the podcast that she liked it. Oh, here we go. She she had a she had a question in this letter. She says, "But it makes me wonder." What were the women and children doing at home during the Civil War? Did women and children in the Confederacy or Union face as drastic food shortages as the troops? And then what was the reason for that shortages? Um, First, that's a very formal letter. It's like someone assigned her to write that letter. I mean, just look how that is just written right there. This is, this is a dedicated fan I right know, here. I mean, she took her time into this. Yes. Oh, also the questions. Yeah, it continues here saying when when soldiers stayed in country farm homes, were women manning the house, and or were they happy to feed the starving men? So that's a that's a big question to answer. But um, I think I think we can with the research that we found. I think it's safe to say that uh, that women actually played a, a decently large role during the war. I mean, I know actually in my research, one of the b big points that I found is that there were bread riots in Richmond. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually found a primary source news article on that. I believe it was 1863 is mm -hmm. when that was happening because all the rations mm -hmm. were going towards the, the Confederates. So at that point, they were just low, low on supplies. Also, women um, were the one of the main bases of industry in the Civil War, especially in the South. And the North, not so much because the North was getting immigrants off the boat, boat by, um, by the thousands. But in the South, though, when all the men won't fight, the women took, let's just like you'd see in World War II, the women would um, take the men's place in the factories. So, um, especially in ammunition factories, women would um, would start making ammunition. They'd start um, work, working in textile mills in the South. And and so you, you, you see them t um, taking up the men's roles on, on the farms as well. So especially in, in the middle class, um, class and lower class families, when the men, um, men left, 
you see them out in the fields along with the children as well. Um, and the um, as for the upper class in the south, um, when all the men left, the, the women became in, um, the upper class women became in charge of um, affairs on the plantation, affairs on, on on the estate. So they're the ones who are man managing the finances, day to day affairs, and things of that such. So um, the role of women def definitely um, stepped um, stepped up during um, during the war, at least when the when the men were gone. I would definitely agree with that because I know when we were talking about it in the last episode. We were talking about how men had to go off to the war not knowing how to cook or, you know, wash their own mm. clothes and that sort of thing. And they had to basically step up from the role that women were fighting in the house. So, I mean, you can already see they're playing a bigger role than what's being let on. Just because, you know, the stories about the about the soldiers doesn't mean they weren't doing something as well. What's one one interesting tidbit that I noticed about women's wars that uh, many of them, especially after the war, had short hair. Why is this? Well, because war means death and during the Victorian um, period, or just the 19th century, when someone died, especially um, a husband or a son, women would cut off their hair and make hair wreaths. Yes, like, like a Christmas wreath out of their hair. Interesting. And they would hang it on door on on their front door. It it showed that they're in mourning. So you'll see a lot of these hair wreaths being put on on the um, on the front doors of um, nor northern northern and southern um. Um, houses and a lot of these women had short hair because they were cutting off their hair um, for these hair reeds. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean because um, I mean, as, as far as like the like starving women and children, mm -hmm. we we have brought that up too in the uh, or I had in my research. Mm -hmm. I found a specific instance in I believe it was eighteen sixty three. Yeah, there was a southern cookbook mm -hmm. that was published that was that was made specifically for the purpose of feeding the South. So this mm -hmm. go, this applies for. The war it mm -hmm. applies for women and children at home. Mm -hmm. It was a book that was literally made to deal with short to make stuff out of shortages of food, mm -hmm. as in like here's what you can make out of table scraps. Mm -hmm. It's pretty <laughs> telling you how to live during the war. Yeah, the North was a little bit different from what I understand because um, you had more people, and um, just because you had more people, you uh, you had say all, um, in the South. Just anyone who was a man was was going to fight in the north. That wasn't the case. You still they still had men to work the factories, men to stay on the home front. So, um, just because there's more of them, yeah, yeah. So women weren't quite as engaged as they were, um, at least in day to day affairs. But you did see a lot of women um, coming more not and in, openly involved in politics, but more involved on their stance in the war. They'd be involved in um, I, 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 they'd form committees to either. And the um end the war to continue the war, um, a whole lot of abolitionists you would see um, they are women, um, of course this because at the time you know this is their um, early days of suffrage women's suffrage, so um, early women's suffragettes and abolitionists actually they worked together for a little bit actually, so um, I'm saying you saw, saw many um, women abolitionists and uh, and suffragettes um, during during this period especially in the northern states. Yeah, as as far as children are concerned I, I don't see i didn't see much of that in my in my research but i'm assuming it was more the same for them because it was they're living on the same household as the women yes. in the most pace i mean like in instances you know you have technically children fighting in the war mm -hmm. yeah. just just claiming to, cradles. claiming to claiming to be like 18 but they're really like 15 14 in reality so i mean i think it's safe to say that the same sort of food shortage situation applies to them as well. Yes, um, children. Um, of course, um, it all varies on where you're living at and and what, what 
um, where you're at in, in terms of class. But um, children's lives mostly d didn't really change as much because, um, say, if you're you know lower class or middle class, you're likely going to begin some schooling, and then you might be going out going out to work in the fields. So you're um and the and you'd be doing the same thing during the war. Um, now, if you're in the north and say you live in New York City, you'd still be going to school, or you might be going to um, to work in a factory. But other than that, though, you're your life really hasn't changed all that much. In terms of food, um, yes, your your uh, your meals would be cut down um, uh, significantly because in the South, at least, um, as you're talking about the, about the um, bread riots and stuff, yes, uh, there was a food shortage from what I know of. But in the North, um, um, you wouldn't really see that, though. Yeah, I noticed that. Um in in my examination of the actual rations that were used, I mean, we talked about last time, hardtack, salt and meats, you know, those are like mm -hmm. the two cornerstones mm -hmm. of the diets. But I also noticed in my research and just from you mm -hmm. know, our experience with living history, there's also some more, you know, obscure foods mm -hmm. as well. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not talking like canned bread because we <laughs> talked about that last time. But um, things things like, you know, like peanuts, there's a whole, there's a whole story behind Goober peas, as yep. it's called, right? Yep, goobers. Go yep. Goobers, goobers, peas. It's a whole song about it. Mm -hmm. Peas, peas, peas. Eating goober peas. Goodness, how delicious. Eating goob. Come on, you're going to sing this with me? Come on, man. I don't even remember. But anyway, so the the story behind that, was, wasn't it like with the uh, southern plantation is where they gained popularity? Um, yes. In fact, in um, in Virginia, I believe. That's right, yeah. Mm -hmm. In Virginia. Um, yes, and Virginia is, um, was one of the strongest places to, um, to grow peanuts. And, sorry, I don't mean to backtrack, but on the home front, of course they're not eating um, hardtack and um, hard um, hardtack and canned bread on the home front. They're living off of, you know, if they have animals, they'll butcher the animals, or they'll, um, or they'll live off um, animals' produce, such as eggs. So they're, they're, they're definitely having more, uh, you know, home-cooked meals there, home-style meals, but... Um, and, they're, and they're by no means living off of hardtack, at least not 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 until after the war. Right. I do know, like after the war, um, you had a lot of uh, destitute rations, um, and if the provost guard, which is like the uh, military police, will be sent into the south after the war, um, if you had signed your um, signed your oath of allegiance, your um, basically the paper that gives you citizenship back to the United States, you will once again be be considered a United States citizen and. Um, the destitute army rations I mentioned earlier will then be considered your property. So all you have to do is go with your oath of allegiance, show it to the produce company that's um, that's stationed in your hometown, and you'll be given hardtack. I remember that actually. Yeah, when I was when I was doing research for this project mm -hmm. and the uh, and the Appomattox campaign book that I was looking at, that was actually a visual that was displayed. Mm -hmm. It was um, Union and Confederate soldiers coming together and you know sharing the rations mm -hmm. after they had signed that paper. So it's interesting to note that once once the Confederates had actually signed their allegiance back, they were actually able to eat something a little bit more substantial than what they were having before. Mm -hmm. And of course, also. Um Along with the uh, um, Oath of Allegiance, you had the Parole Pass, um, which we may have mentioned earlier. Uh, I'm not so sure, but the Parole Pass also it gave soldiers on the way back home. Um, if you were a, uh, a Confederate soldier that served at Appomattox or in Durham, North Carolina, um, you'd be given a Parole Pass. And this Parole Pass not only does it um, allow you to, well, not only does it say that you're no longer a fighting soldier, 
but it'll also allow you to cross through Union and Confederate lines safely and that you can get free food and rations at um, Union camps and then you can use this um, pass as a free ticket to ride on any Union controlled railroad waterway. So you can literally um, go to a camp outside Knoxville, use it to take you know um, hard tack and maybe some salted pork, and you'll write down where you took that that food from, and then you'll get on a train and um, ride to Galveston, Texas, and you'll write down that you were going to Galveston, Texas. So on the back of that pass, you're keeping a travel log, which it's pretty interesting because it's um, if you look at these passes today, it's pretty um, cool to see the soldiers in. Um, journey get to see their progression back mm -hmm. home. You know yep. how it how it is for them living conditions, yep. what they're eating, and they weren't required to do that. They weren't required to record that. They were doing that on their own, on their on their own means. Just to, give them something to do. Well, they gave them something to do, and they. I mean, the journey back home to them, it was special. I yeah. mean, it was something truly really special. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. Um, again, with uh, more types of foods that were being or rations, I guess. Well. Not really rations, even, because this is just, like, more long foods that are, like, picked up along the way. Mm -hmm. But um, I read in some sources that uh, just along their on their campaigns, you know, they might pick some berries from fields mm -hmm. or just anything that they managed to f find along the way during their journey Forging. as well. And which kind of leads to the um, idea of the forage cap. So, um, you know, about bummer caps, you know, sort of like, like, like the kepi, which is basically a um, sort of like a baseball cap -looking thing that's made out of wool. But um, the successor to it is called Bummer Cap, which... Same thing, just bigger. <laughs> um, it has more space in it. Because what soldiers would do is they take off these um, these Bummer Caps, and they can use it to put um, put food in. Um, yeah, use it to carry, th um, carry food in. So they're called Forge Caps, because they would use them um, in foraging. Because when you're foraging for food, um, whether it's, um, it's, it's getting food from a nearby farm, whether it's, um, or it's just out in the wilderness getting food, um, you need something to carry that food in, and while your haversack, which is where you carry your food, um, normally would carry your food in, would be um, stuffed full. Yeah, it'd be <laughs> stuffed full normally with with, with with more food. You always want to have somewhere else to carry um, carry more food because in, in the army, an ar an army can't march on its stomach. That's the words of Napoleon. It's very true. Good, yep. important quote to leave in there because especially I remember we were talking about it with those haversacks during living history, those things are, are you know, relatively small mm -hmm. by, by, like, at least standard, mm -hmm. at least standard military sizing. So it's interesting to think that they were supposed to carry all of their food yeah. in those little, those little sacks. I remember when I first got my haversack, I had this little boy come up and call my haversack a man purse, which kind of made you feel a little bad, but, um, the, the, yeah. what was you going to say? It, do, it does kind of look like that, yeah. Yeah, man purse, yeah. <laughs> Well, um, yeah, haversacks basically like, like a leather satchel that soldiers wear on their side, and <clears throat> while their clothing and you know equipment, well, like clothing and books and things would go in their their knapsack on their back, their food would go in their haversack, and they wear it on their side. So that way, when they're on the march, they can easily reach their hand into that haversack and pull out a square hardtack. They can pull out an apple or goober peas. And just easily eat, you know, eat while they're marching, because you're rarely going to get the chance to stop and, and have a meal if you're doing a uh, a 30, 40 mile mile force march w within a day. Yeah, I, I remember actually seeing in the in this is a little off topic, but in the cookbook that I was that I was looking at before mm -hmm. the Southern cookbook, I mentioned how they were talking about they had to use scraps to make their foods basically. Mm -hmm. 
And I remember seeing this one recipe that was so disgusting. It was like you take you like boil your hardtack or you like get it down to mush. Mm. You you get some raw peanuts, you mash those in there, and then you get some salted beef. You're you're basically just making spam or just mm. you throw all all of your junk together in one pile and then just make this mu this edible mush and you eat that. I'm like, I didn't need a cookbook to figure that one out. <laughs> that, that reminds me of a, of a personal story. It is my first reenactment that I did. I was, um, they gave us a, a bunch of rations of, it was salted pork, corn, and potatoes. And this one recruit that I may, that may or may not have been me, um, did not, not know how long we had to cook the food. So what he did was he cut it all up and put it into his cup and filled it with water and Placed it on the fire, basically made it made it into a stew, uh, a stew. What that recruit did not do, which may or may not have been me, is that he did not pre-cook the pork or the bacon. <laughs> so essentially, he was putting raw raw meat into that soup. So he hastily um, downs downs that that hodgepodge soup, and for the rest of the day, he's good until the next morning, and he got sick, and so. <laughs> I, I remember that recruit, which again, may or may not have been me, um, when he was giving the order to charge the enemy, he charged, got right to a, a cannon, and vomited in the cannon. <laughs> so, Fire away! Fire away, exactly. <laughs> so, um, and, and that's the thing, going back to a discussion we had in the previous podcast, a lot of these soldiers had never cooked before. Um, they, you know, they, they, they're living at home, they're young boys. You'd like to think somebody else made that mistake at one point. Oh, um, I, I, I like to, but, <laughs> um, but, but sure, I'm pretty sure something like that would have happened though. I mean, these, these soldiers, you know, they're 18, 19 years old, they're living at home, um, some with their parents and their mother would be the one doing the cooking. Makes it, yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, they, they show up in the army and they're told here, cook this slab of bacon. They're like, how do how? I do that? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Bacon and meat go on fire. Yeah. <laughs> cook, cook. Mm. How they cook their food was pretty interesting. Is um, they just literally had it, um, all their silverware or dishware it was just made of metal. Oh. So it'd be like a tin plate mm -hmm. and a tin cup, and so they just you know cut up and just put it on that on that on that metal plate and just throw it on fire, and they'd have to um get a rag or something and just quickly pull it off so we don't don't get burned obviously yeah and you'd see at these at these fire pit um like, at their um campfires just just dishes and dishes just stacked all around the um the campfire i would not have would have been the dishwasher for that expedition well you, you normally just wash your own dishes but it it, it was. I remember um, reading accounts of soldiers just getting in fights because they, they there was not enough room to put your um your 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 meal by the fire to, to cook it, and if if you're you know you don't know how long you're gonna be there until um until the captain's gonna give the order for the company to move. We're gonna need a bigger fire. Exactly, and um and in the um army in during the Civil War, and I'm pretty sure is still true in the army today. The officers don't tell the um the privates anything or. The enlisted men anything so if you're an if you're an enlisted man and you want to eat your food you want to know how long you have to cook it yeah or how long you have to eat it that's right yeah so so you want to try and cook your food as quick as possible before you want to wait for someone to you know to finish their meal before you before you're ordered to go out and shoot something <laughs> yeah exactly it you makes, can't fight on an empty stomach it makes sense yeah mm. 
that brings up another point that I had about the um, about the food preparation as well. Because mm-hmm. like, I imagine after looting like like goober peas or, or like apples or something that you just have dry and ready to eat right there, that's got to be like the best thing ever. Mm-hmm. Because you don't actually have to cook your food, or you don't have to like like water it down, mm-hmm. water down your hardtack or the salted meat or whatever. You just have it right there. Yeah, dry food like fruit, like peaches and apples. You could eat it right then yeah, and there. Yeah, it was, it was most preferable. Yeah. Um, Plus, you get a sugar uh, sugar rush. I am um, reminded of a story I read uh, from a soldier's diary. It was in the um, siege of Petersburg, and I think it was November of eighteen sixty four. He was a Confederate soldier, and he, the man recalls looking across the line, seeing a Union officer with a haversack, a fat haversack. Now, when a soldier has a fat haversack, that means he got some really good food in that haversack. So, um, the soldier's keeping an eye on that officer, that fat haversack, for an entire week until um, eventually there's um, his company is ordered to attack the enemy trench, which they do, and he, t- he partakes in, and he sees that officer. Well, as war goes, the man kills the officer. And takes that fat haversack, brings it back to his camp, opens it up, and the very the, the fat thing he saw saw bulging out of the haversack was a big pound of coffee. <laughs> so you know this man this man's excited. It's coffee, and if you're a Confederate soldier in 1864, coffee's gonna come, be hard to come by. Yeah, because um mm-hmm. you're living off of. Basically, their coffee at the time was, was acorn coffee. Ever had acorn coffee? Acorn coffee. Acorn I, coffee. I don't like regular coffee, so well, that sounds horrible. It's, it, you have to pretend like it's good, essentially. It's gross. I've, I've had it. It's terrible. You're basically boiling acorns just to create the consistency of coffee, but you're, you're not getting the caffeine rush. You're not getting the bitterness. It's Well, it's bitter, but in, in, a, <laughs> in another way, actually. But anyhow, it's gross. So if you're a Confederate soldier and, and you're getting fresh coffee, you're going to be quite excited. And you know that you're gonna have to hide it because if anyone else finds out about that coffee, you're gonna, you know, they're they're gonna try and take it from you. So I, yeah, I read about that in the sources too. Coffee since day one was a, like a, a treasured commodity mm-hmm, in the South. Because I, uh, you know, hard to, in the book, hard attacking coffee. Mm-hmm. You see in the northern side, you know, they can they can usually get their steady supply, but mm-hmm. the South without their coffee, they're they're desperate. They need that caffeine rush. The punchline to this story. Um, so the soldier, he um. He didn't want he, he didn't want people to find out that he was drinking coffee. So every morning he would volunteer to go on canteen runs. So this this was was a, a single soldier of each company would go somewhere and fill up the, the entire all the company's canteens pretty much. So the soldier would do that. He'd get up the canteens, bring them down to this to this creek that he saw behind the trench, and fill it up. While he was down there filling up the canteens, he'd light a small fire and he'd cook the coffee. <laughs> so every morning he's down there drinking coffee and filling up canteens. Well. His company is oblivious to what he's doing. Well, one morning he's down there doing his routine, drinking his coffee, filling up the canteens, and he realizes that the water tastes funny. And it's always tasted funny. He just can't really explain why. It's very sweet. So he begins to look around, and he walks upstream, only to find out that the creek was running through the corpse of a dead mule, the ribcage of a dead mule. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> so it kind of ruined the whole coffee experience for that poor guy. Yeah. Did he did he ever get caught with this coffee? Uh, the story never ne- ne- never alluded to. I, I I guess he must have finished it all by then. Maybe he had. Lucky guy. Kind of after that after that point, the soldiers kind of like dropped talking about the coffee. Do you think you think uh, canned bread and acorn tea were ever uh, drank drank in unison? 
can consumed in unison. Mm, just let me dump this canned bread in my acorn coffee. Yeah. <laughs> oh, like you taste the grit. Oh, that's gotta be even worse with hardtack, where you gotta take your hardtack and you gotta soak it in some acorn juice. Mm, yeah. mm, mm. That sounds wonderful. Acorns, they they do walnuts as well. Cause I mean, like they talk about soaking, soaking like the uh, the meats and the hardtacks down to mm -hmm. get it to the point where you can actually chew the stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming they didn't just do that in straight water, because I mean, like who, like just drinking water by itself, they wouldn't really do that, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Because I mean, especially after you boil the stuff, it's like, well, I gotta wait for it to cool down now. <laughs> I mean, they don't they don't really have any method of refrigeration at that point. Any way to sort of keep it cold. Not really, no. Uh, unless, you know, you maybe get some ice from a river. If you can find if, ice. If it's that cold, yeah. But if I there's mean, maybe yeah. like a, you know, a farmhouse nearby with a with an ice house, Somewhere. then you might, but... That's, that's very, yeah. But that's other, other than that, though, it, there's really no way to keep things cool. Yeah. Just, just keep it out of the sunlight, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially coupled with the fact, uh, I, I, I think I brought this point in the previous episode, but coffee... Coffee, salted meats, mm -hmm. salted bread, <laughs> coupled with with your huge woolen uniforms, hot, marching out in a hot summer all day. All those carbohydrates. I still don't understand how all how that sodium. All those soldiers made it through that. To be honest, I'm I, I'm sure there's there's got to be records of of just soldiers straight up collapsing. Oh, there were there yeah, were absolutely. Like, it has to have happened. Oh, it it it, it definitely happened. Um, in fact, at the Battle of First Manassas, which took place during the summer of '61, every soldier was just just dropping. Just, you know, soldiers on both sides were just becoming exhausted. I mean, if you weren't if you weren't uh, sweating to death, you were freezing to death. Yeah, I mean, because in the in the winter time, it's the exact opposite. You'd think that um, with all that wool, that um, they'd stay stay warm. Not really, because the thing is, wool breathes. It breathes. Which means that it doesn't insulate very well. So, um, so while so while yes, it will keep you warm. You're gonna have to keep on trying to find new ways to get warm because that that heat's not gonna stay in. So that's another reason they need that bigger fire. You gotta yeah. stay, you gotta stay warm and cook your food. Mm -hmm. I guess you said that was in '61, right? Yep. I guess by that point they were still a little new to the war. They were. They were. <laughs> they, they, they toughened up towards the end with their so with their sodium intake. <laughs> The sodium brought through. Mm. I'm I'm trying to think of any other uh, foods that could have been consumed on campaigns. Talked about goober peas, you know, your peaches, your apples. Oh, oh, actually, you mentioned earlier corn and potatoes. Mm -hmm. what, what, how how frequent are those in the staple of the diet? Would you say? Because during my research, I didn't see too much mention of them, but I know that they definitely had them at some points. Of course, they had corn and potatoes. Mm -hmm. uh, well, we mentioned corn in the last podcast. That's but, right. Yeah. About the um on the on the south seas of corn with Johnny cakes and cornmeal. Mm -hmm. Potatoes, you'd see because the thing about the great thing about potato and the British figured this out when they were um with with Ireland is that the potato can stay around forever. I mean, it it takes a potatoes can rot, but they'll but they'll last for a good long time. It's the hard tack of vegetables, pretty much, <laughs> essentially. I mean, yes, you had the, the potato famine in far, in uh, Ireland, which resulted in um. In, in, in mass immigration, but here in the United States, potato famine, well, I mean, while there were cases of the potato famine, it wasn't as severe, so you would see, um, you would see, um, soldiers having, you know, being, being issued potatoes, because it's, it's all where, 
what their uh, the can what the quartermaster can get his hands on, basically. Right. It's all what um yeah what what the, what the quartermaster and the supply sergeants what what they can um get together from um from from army command. Um, you see, would have groups like the um like the United States Christian Commission, for example. Um, they would um they would send food to the armies. It's like a it's like a you know, a, a church getting food together for the army and, and sending it onto the war front. Mm -hmm. And um, a company, a regiment, they'll be they'll get that food. It could be food from uh, from farms out in Vermont or farms in, in, in Georgia. So um, it could be carrots, potatoes, uh, farm vegetables. They just have to get it pretty quickly before it begins to rot. And the good thing about potatoes, as we mentioned earlier, is that it does it takes a while for them to rot. Yeah, practically speaking, it does make sense. You know, mm -hmm. it's pretty self-contained it has a skin on it to help it and then it doesn't doesn't rot as easy so yeah i could definitely see and why it's easy to cook why that yeah easy to cook as well you just really all you gotta do really gotta do is the potato is just put on a pan and throw on the fire and you can just you know cut it up and eat it like that mm -hmm. you got so with the um the cooking supplies that we were talking about earlier mm -hmm. What 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 would like because it was mentioned in hardtack and coffee but like what would the typical soldier actually have in terms of cooking supplies on them, well, um, kind of very, um, they, sometimes they, they they would have me, um, metal plates, just just metal tin tin plates. Um, they would also have uh, metal silverware as well as well. If they didn't have silverware, they would use their knives. Also, what they would do is if they had lost their plate or knife, they they would take canteens and break the canteens in half and use canteen halves as plates. That's been done before. Um, and also, they always had their mugs, their the tin mugs, which were used either as as cups or bowls. Yep. Oh yeah. I yep. I used it that for that and mm -hmm. uh, in living history all the time. Yep. That was the handiest piece that I had in my sack. Yep. So and as for the mug, that was all that was always seen um, strapped to the side of the haversack. Um, through um through the the strap of the haversack. So I mean, yeah, yeah, those those things are huge too. Like compared compared to like our, you're thinking like a coffee cup or something today. No, 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 no. This thing is enormous. Yeah, it's like a camp mug. Mm -hmm. So um, and what's kind of annoying is when these soldiers would march, um, that mug would um, ding, yeah, ding, it, it, ding. yeah, it, 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 it would ding <laughs> the, um beside the bayonet because you um, part of our protocol was you would wear your haversack on the left. What would also go on the left is your bayonet. So if that mug being on um, hanging off the haversack and your bayonet being on the left on the same side as the haversack, when you're on the march, as you said, it's just it's just ding 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 ding. And so um, imagine an entire <clears throat> entire army, and all you're hearing is this. Get really annoying. Oh yes. Quickly. And you think that an army's supposed to move quietly? No, it's not. Yeah, couple that with like the stomping of I don't even know how many soldiers, and <laughs> that's gonna get real, yeah. real loud real yeah. quickly. And the smell, of yeah. course. Hmm. Army, army, army smells horrible. Oh yeah. Medicine can compare that with like uh, eat, imagine soldiers held on to food for longer than they should have. Mm -hmm. Fresher foods like uh, potatoes and such, even if they did go bad at some point, that's probably going to contribute to the smell. Yeah, yeah, I'll, yeah. Rotting food. Get some, get some dirty apples in there too. I know. Um, I know. There's one case of um, some. It was some Union scouts moving through. Was it Alabama or Arkansas? It was one of the southern A states. 
Well, um, there's Sumerian scouts moving through um, 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 through the countryside, and they come across a watermelon farm. And immediately the scouts <laughs> just break rank, and oh, they yeah. run out to have water. <laughs> it's, it's watermelon, and, and it's August in, in the oh, deep south. That's so correct. Yeah. You know they want that watermelon, so yeah. so they immediately been um, begin to um, taking um, all that watermelon, and of course here's the farmer. He's he's not too happy about it. The um so the the company the officer with, um, with those scouts he goes and he makes each man pay um, the farmer a total of ten dollars for the watermelons that they took. Ten dollars from each from each soldier from each soldier each soldier ten this is and this is eighteen sixty four I think I believe that was in eighteen sixty two or eighteen sixty two or three but still ten dollars per soldier well here's the bite it was in Union currency ah okay so imagine, now it all makes sense imagine you're a a a, a southern farmer and and your and your state switched to um, southern using using the southern dollar and these these boys from from Michigan just start taking all your, your your watermelons, and you want your you want your watermelons and cantaloupes back, and they say they will pay, and they do, and the currency that your state no longer accepts, you have, and 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 you don't know that that the war will end in, in, in two or three years, and but so you you're given this money that you that you think that you'll never even have the chance to use again. Yeah, I guess they didn't really have a coin star to go to, did they? No, they didn't. <laughs> no Western Union to do an exchange. Yeah, that's right. I imagine too. Yeah, because you were talking about the frenzy with the watermelon. I imagine just they want something to drink too besides acorn tea. <laughs> acorn tea, Get that sweet coffee. sweet watermelon. Well, here's another story I know of, and this one's pretty um pretty uh, pretty interesting. It was the governor of Pennsylvania. I forget what his name was, but he was running for election in 1864, and he he knew that he needed to get the vote. And see, ironically, on what the 1864 election was, that was the first year that soldiers in the field could um, could vote in an election, and that was actually a trick of Lincoln's. Lincoln, as much as we love we love Lincoln, um, he was a quite a shrewd politician. Lincoln um, ran through Congress that the soldiers um, should be able to vote because he knew that all the soldiers would vote for him because McClellan wanted to end the war and um, that wasn't going to be favorable for the soldiers. So, but you know, Lincoln knew that by letting the soldiers vote, he'd be getting votes for him. So he knew that that no one in in Congress would be the want to be the one that would stop the fighting soldiers from from voting. So anyhow, um, what the governor of Pennsylvania does to um, to win these soldiers' votes is he sends trainloads of Yangling beer. At that time, it's called Eagle Brewery. Oh yeah, <laughs> Yangling beer from Pottsville, Pennsylvania, um, to the soldiers of the 85th Pennsylvania, and they were, at that time they were stationed outside of Richmond during the siege of Petersburg. Mm -hmm. So he he pretty much bought their vote with beer. Here, Makes sense why, to me. Why don't you um why don't you vote for me? I'll buy you beer. I'd I'd vote for him. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's good work on Yang's part. America's oldest brewery. Excellent. You shouldn't have got, shouldn't have got, got them as a, as a sponsor for his head. <laughs> yeah, get, get, Yang, get Yangling as a sponsor. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I'd much rather have some of that than some uh, some acorn coffee. Acorn coffee. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you, um, soldiers, um, you know, they, they love their libations. Um, they, they drink beer. And, of course, the libations, um, it all kind of varied per, per where they're from. So, um, in the South, especially in Virginia, they took a liking to apple brandy. 
because they grew a lot of uh, apples in Virginia. So apple brandy, and of course, over in Tennessee and Kentucky, you hear a lot about you know the um, a lot about the whiskey and the bourbon. So really, it was just whatever whatever thing where they could really get their um um their mouths on. In North Carolina, it was muscadine wine, which I hate muscadine wine, but that's off topic. But um. But yes, so real um so whatever they were drinking really came from um where they're coming from. New York, Pennsylvania, it was beer. So it's it's it, that's interesting to hear because the, those regional differences, even even it's not just a matter of north and south, it's really a speci- a specific area like which part you're in that that is going to dictate what kind of drink you're having. Yeah. It's it, see that man over there, he's drinking that beer. He must be a Yankee. Yeah. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> If the, if the uh, blue uniform didn't give it away, his drink of choice will. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's that's good. I, I like how we actually um, we actually managed to answer that question from mm-hmm. uh, from Haley because that was that was a doozy. Uh, it was a great question though. Mm-hmm. Questions, if you will. But um, yeah, I was I was happy that we could get those done. Just just because you know, always got to keep the fans happy, and you know, want to make sure we're informing the public too. You're such a crowd pleaser. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's it was great having you on the show, Harry, and I'm glad that we could do this again. Maybe I was we'll, glad to be here. Maybe we'll have to it's do episode fun. three. Of course, yes, the the return of Harry Caldwell. <laughs> Harry Caldwell rides again. Part two. <laughs> uh, that'd be great. Well, yeah, it's good to hear. Uh, likewise. All right. Signing off. This is Davis Simmons and Harry Caldwell. Incoming. <laughs>